Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. Emergency medicine is one of those practices in which immediate care for acute illness or injury means that every day and night is frankly very different. There is no set routine. This is both an advantage and a disadvantage. Here to discuss the practice of emergency medicine from his two decades of experience in a community teaching hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, as well as other topics, is the current president of MedCHI, Maryland State Medical Society, Dr. David Hexter. Dr. Hexter, welcome to Voices from American Medicine. Thank you, Gary. How are you? Great. It's great to have you join us today. And I'm really excited to talk about kind of this notion of the advantages and disadvantages of emergency medicine and the fact that there really is no real routine from one day to the next. For starters, I'd love you to describe the hospital that you're working in and your practice in general. Well, I am a community emergency physician. I practice at a community teaching hospital. We do have uh, resident physicians on staff, and they rotate through the emergency department. I work in an urban emergency department, which means the urban problems that come with it, and we see approximately 60,000 visits a year, and that translates to around 200 patients a day. And when you talk about being in an urban community health teaching hospital, describe some of the patients that you see. What is, to the degree that there is a typical day or night, what kinds of patients walk into the ER? Well, you're right. There really isn't a typical day, and I never know what I'm going to get from shift to shift. It could be a nice day where perhaps everybody's left the city for the weekend and it's a holiday, or perhaps it's a little different. For example, when we have a professional football team or Worse, from my perspective, a large rock concert in town, and we'll see uh, dozens and dozens of people who may be injured or on drugs and other substances uh, at these events, and they come to us for help. When you're providing that help and that care, obviously in the time that you've spent in emergency medicine, there have been a great deal of changes over the last two decades in terms of the way that you approach emergency medicine from a technology standpoint and on-call physicians, patients, providers. Talk a little bit about the changes you've seen over the last two decades in emergency medicine. Well, I'll tell you, in technology, it's really tremendous, the changes that I've seen. And if I wasn't keeping up with my continuing education or the past 20 years, I'd really be lost because back when I started, a lot of patients came in with a number of different problems, but there wasn't a whole lot we could do for them, and there certainly weren't a lot of time-sensitive treatments other than perhaps for acute trauma. But now we have, for example, the treatment of STEMIs or ST elevation myocardial infarctions in which time is critical in getting the reperfusion of the heart and we do that either through medication, through thrombolytic, or through angioplasty. And the standard is that we get a patient who presents into the system, whether it's in EMS or in the emergency department, to the cath table with an artery being opened in 90 minutes. And I'll tell you, that is quite a logistical challenge, especially if your hospital doesn't do those catheterizations. In addition to that, we have now stroke centers, and we are providing time-sensitive treatment for acute ischemic strokes, and uh, that requires, again, systems of care so that a patient can 
receive the needed therapy within three hours from onset of their symptoms. Another thing that's really come into play in the last few years is the treatment of patients who've had return of spontaneous circulation, or ROSC, after cardiac arrest. Those patients were in the past typically stabilized with fluids and pressors and placed in the intensive care unit. But now we are cooling these patients for 24 hours or longer and finding pretty dramatic outcomes afterwards. So here again, we have another very resource and time-intensive treatment that we're bringing upon our patients just wasn't there 20 years ago. And finally, for sepsis, we now have early goal-directed therapy, whereas in the past, it was fluids, pressors, and antibiotics trying to do it in a timely fashion. Now we're putting in central lines, and we're trying to obtain physiologic measurements on these patients as soon as possible so that we can achieve certain goals in their therapy and achieve better outcomes, and that's what it's all about. That's terrific. Describe the facility that you're working in, and has the physical structure of the facility changed in terms of the number of patients you can triage and adapting all of this technology that you were describing, and how has that evolved? 20 years ago or more, the emergency department was often relegated to the basement and starved of resources because it seemed that the patients that the hospital maybe wanted were the ones who did not come through the emergency department. But that has really changed over time. And now hospitals recognize that their emergency departments are the front door to the community. And when you ask patients in the community what do they think of this hospital or that hospital, often it's their experience in the emergency department that gives them the information to decide whether they want to go to that hospital or not go to that hospital. So over the past few years, I would say decade at least, there has been a lot of investment in emergency apartment facilities and resources to really make it look like a front door you want to be proud of. And yes, we are commonly on the first floor of the hospital, but I think now it's not because they want us to be in the basement, but for practical reasons that you don't want to have to go up the elevator to get your treatment for an emergency. And I know the hospital that you're in is a teaching hospital. Talk a little bit about how you integrate the teaching, training, and education component in the ER. Well, we provide an experience for our residents that includes a didactic experience as well as a practical experience. But that has changed quite a bit over the years, too, because I can remember when I was a student, I was performing a lot of procedures and maybe taking care of a lot of complex medical problems that were pretty high level for a student. And I was instructed that if I had any trouble, be sure to present it to the intern. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I became an intern, I was basically told the same thing, that go ahead, take care of that patient, sew up what needs to be sewn, and order whatever diagnostic tests need to be ordered. And if you have any trouble, talk to the resident. And then as I moved up and was a resident, then we were told to talk to the attending. And when I was early in my training, the attending was usually in the back room and was not to be disturbed unless it was absolutely necessary. But, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, that has really changed. And now teaching physicians are very involved in the care of all their patients and expect to have a presentation from the resident or student about the patient and be involved in their care. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. 
I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today from Baltimore, Maryland, is emergency room physician and president of MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society, Dr. David Hexter. Dr. Hexter, I wanted to follow up on what we were just talking about, and if you were going to talk to a young group of medical students about emergency medicine, you know, what are the pros and cons, and what do you like about it? You know, how'd you convince them to sign on to be an ER doc? Well, I think the best way to talk to the students about emergency medicine is to give them my own experience and my own decision-making. And I found that as I was exposed to the different specialties of medicine, general surgery, internal medicine, neurology, obstetrics, I found that I liked it all. And I really couldn't narrow it down to a single specialty at the expense of shutting out the rest. And so I was considering, well, what specialty would allow me to be able to practice in all of these specialties? And emergency medicine came to mind, and that was the reason I chose it, in addition to a very unique opportunity to save lives almost on a daily basis. It's just really an incredible experience that you don't get from other specialties. And I'll tell you, we go through a lot of grief in the emergency department, starved of resources, and a lot of patients who would prefer not to be there, and also those who abuse the emergency department. But the experience of pulling someone out of the jaws of death and saving their life is just like no other, and it's still that way today, and that's what I would tell a student who may be interested in the field. And was there something or an event or someone that initially when you were undergrad and then went to medical school that inspired the direction to emergency medicine or medicine in general? I have to say it was quite the opposite. In fact, when I expressed my interest in emergency medicine, I have to say that this specialty has only been around since the early 1970s. And it was a specialty that was born out of demand from the public to get high-quality care when they are taken to the emergency department as opposed to being cared for by someone who was on call, did not want to really be there, and perhaps did not have the knowledge or skills to provide the care they needed. But for me to get involved, it was just a great experience. I want to talk a little bit about the other role that you play in medicine, and that is in organized medicine as the president of MedKai. I'd love to hear a little bit about the kinds of issues that are facing physicians that you're hearing about from your members and that you speak about in Maryland. I originally got started in organized medicine approximately a decade ago when I was offered the opportunity to serve as physician of the day in the General Assembly of our state legislature. And since I lived not too far away from the, the capital in Annapolis, I figured well, I guess I'm as good a person as any to go down there and volunteer my time. It was a nice experience, not too stressful. And during the afternoon of my first day, the lobbyist for our organization came by and said, we need a physician to testify on behalf of one of our bills. And I said, well, certainly I can't do that. I don't know anything about your bills, and I don't know anything about what I would say in such a situation. And they said, oh, no, no, you know everything. You're practicing. You'll be fine. I said, but I've never done this before. And they said, no, no. And it turned out it was a bill that was directed at HMOs and a problem we have in emergency medicine back in the 1990s when we had to call for authorization 
for any sort of treatment or consultation. And the situation was that we would call for authorization. And remember that most of the hours that the emergency department is open are outside the hours of 9 to 5 when the office of the HMO may be open. And so we would call and get no answer and then have to arrange for care for the patient because if I have someone with a broken leg in the middle of the night, I'm going to arrange the care. Three or four days later, after the patient was cared for by an orthopedist and discharged home, the orthopedist would find that the payment for the care they provided was denied because they didn't get authorization. Of course, we tried, and the HMO wasn't open and wasn't answering the phone. So it was easy for me to get on the stand and say, hey, I work commonly on night shifts, weekends. I call for these authorizations, and they often don't answer the phone, and I don't know much about what's going on with the payment to the orthopedists or the other specialists that I may call, but if that's a problem, then it would seem to me this bill that you have, which would require payment if they don't answer the phone, seems to be reasonable to me, and the legislatures really thought that was a great idea. The bill passed. It became law, and... Really, the rest is history from there. I became very interested in what was going on in the legislature with respect to medicine and became an advocate for our patients and our physicians. Dr. Hexter, as you know, our show is called Voices from American Medicine, and it's really all about capturing your voice and others. Are there any final thoughts or impressions you'd love to share? Well, I just wanted to encourage everyone to join up with organized medicine because if we all take on all these issues individually, then certainly divided we will fall if we are together through our professional associations and even between and among our professional associations. If we go together with a united voice, then we will prevail. And there are some significant forces, headwinds that we are up against. And by getting together, we can prevail and do what's best for our patients and make sure that all of our patients have access to high-quality care. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. David A. Hexter, an emergency room physician and current president of the Maryland State Medical Society. Dr. Hexter, thanks again so much for being a guest on Voices from American Medicine. Thank you very much, Gary. I appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you today. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein.